Welcome to Family Church Podcast. From wherever you're listening, we thank you for joining us. If you missed our family gathering this week, we missed you, and we hope that you enjoy this week's message. Today we're looking at the basics of redemption and what Jesus has done for us, and I think we find one of the most beautiful promises of Scripture in Romans chapter 8. So go ahead and turn there, take a look at that. Now folks, living in Gainesville for four years, there was one thing, and I could never quite decide if it was the Lord's greatest blessing or the devil's greatest curse, and that was... Uh, No matter where I lived, I was always about 10 minutes away from a 24-7 Krispy Kreme. If it it was up to my taste buds, I'd say it was the Lord's greatest blessing. If it was up to the freshman 40 that I put on, because freshman 15 is rookie numbers, I'd probably say the devil's greatest curse, and I'm still working off that today. Um, (laughs) But, man, I developed like a spidey sense in Gainesville. Whenever they hit that hot and ready sign, like, I'm getting up out of bed, I'm in my car, and I'm going, because I knew it was on. And my first year, my freshman year of college, um, I would go there probably three times a week, which I would say for Krispy Kreme, you're probably only able to go there one time a week. But I was hitting that place up every single week, because I loved the donuts so much. I already know what you're talking about, right? Because you you know how good Krispy Kreme is, right? But the thing is, is they're so bad for you. They are probably the worst thing that you can put in your mouth and eat, right? I would go over and over and over again, and I I was trying to get back into fitness. I was trying to work out. I was trying to, you know, cut off that freshman 40 that I'd gained. But every time that I tried to, to stay away from going to Krispy Kreme, I would reason myself back into going. I'd be like, man, yesterday you spent all day on UF campus. You walked around. You burned like a million calories. You can eat like four donuts. Don't worry about it. And there I was again. I'd get in my car. I'd drive to Krispy Kreme, and I'd get another donut. I was caught in a cycle of going to Krispy Kreme and getting something that was probably not too good for me, but I kept going back over and over and over again because I loved it so much. And, and that's the point to this story, y'all, is that you are a slave to something when it's killing you, but you keep going back in for more. Today, we're turning to my favorite passage of scripture in the entire Bible to study our own cycle of slavery that each one of us has been caught in, and that's the slavery of sin. We've all been caught in it no matter what it is, whether it's sexual immorality, addiction to something, anger towards others, lying, coveting, whatever it may be. We've all experienced that Krispy Kreme donut, right? We've all taken a part of it, and we've all gone back over and over and over again. Some of us in the room might still be caught in that cycle of sin. But today, we're examining that even though sin holds us captive, Jesus has broken the chains and set us free and made us something new. And that's what Paul's going to teach us today in Romans chapter 8. Let me go ahead and pray us in. We'll get into it. Father, we love you so much. Thank you for your word, uh, Jesus, and, and praise you. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we are now children of God. That's a promise I remind myself of every day, Father, because when I worry that you're looking at me angrily, Father, when you're looking at me with disappointment, I remember that you only look at me and see your son. Thank you for the love that you have for us, God. As we go through the word today and as we go forward in our ministry together, me partnering with this church, God, I pray that you would just be glorified in everything that we do. We love you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. Now, fair warning, since this is a one-week sermon, we have a good amount of background work to get into before we get started, um, so don't get too bored. No. Maybe I'll let you spin around in the circle if we, get, <laughs> if we get too far into it. But go ahead and look. We're going to go ahead and look in verses 12 and 13, and Paul says this. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. Now, we're going to get to verse 12 soon and go through how we're not obligated anymore, but we need to cover verse 13 first because the truth is a lot of us are stuck there. Some of us have been stuck there before. Some of us may be stuck there today. You're living according to the flesh, and you are going to die. 
When Paul says flesh, he doesn't actually mean the body bag that you're carrying around every day, right? He's not talking about your skin and your bones. He's talking about the sin nature that's present in all of us. Our hearts are naturally inclined to move towards evil. And I thought, man, how am I going to convince a room of people that we naturally move towards uh, away from the good and towards the bad? But then I realized that I don't have to convince you because everybody knows and everybody's experienced it. Everybody knows what it's like to see the line that God has drawn in the sand and stepped over it because we've just wanted to so bad. But the question to answer before we get in this morning is why is sin so seductive? Why is it so great to our eyes? And I think if we want to understand the seduction of sin, there's no better passage that does it than Proverbs 5, 3 through 6. So a quick turn, go ahead and look at Proverbs 5, 3 through 6. It says this, though the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey and her words are smoother than oil, in the end she's as bitter as wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps head straight for Sheol. That's the land of the dead. She doesn't consider the path of life, and she doesn't know that her ways are unstable. So Proverbs is actually one of the most heart-wrenching books that you can read because it's actually a father teaching his son how to not fall into the mistakes that he used to make. This is Solomon writing these words to his son in the future. And on the surface, it looks like Solomon's teaching his son to stay away from a prostitute, and he is in some way, right? A lot of the Proverbs are actually double meaning because Solomon is so advanced in his wisdom. So this is a double meaning uh, psalm. It's a symbolism. And it really teaches us this, to stay away from sin. To Solomon, sin is like a prostitute because everything about it is great to the eyes, but destructive to the soul. Her lips drip with honey. She looks incredible on the outside. I just think about that Krispy Kreme donut, man, covered in glaze. Like that boy looks good. Her words are smooth to your ears. She's very persuasive. For me, that's the hot and ready sign, man. When I pass that hot and ready sign, I'm like, they're hot and ready, though. I got to go in there, right? I got to get one. Everything to the senses about this prostitute, about that Krispy Kreme donut, right? I might get sued by them at the end of this, but everything about that Krispy Kreme donut is so attractive to our eyes that we just want to go in and take a bite. But we know on the inside, that's not the truth. Solomon also says on the inside, this woman who looks so good on the outside, right, is bitter, sharp, and death on the inside. And the same, we, need, we know those donuts will destroy your life if you eat too many of them. And we know, too, that sin destroys our lives if we pour into it. Here's the main idea from this text. How does sin capture us? Sin fools us because it plays to our desire for pleasure and pride. It's desire. Our desire hides the death that's inside. We see something and we choose to ignore that it's actually walking away from God's command. Outside, something, some things look great. Sexual immorality certainly provides a moment of happiness. Substance abuse can give you a high. Breaking something can give some relief to anger, but it's not long before you find men and women addicted to pornography and broken marriages across our land. Junkies chasing another high because the first one is never enough. Anger that has festered into abusing others because breaking things just doesn't do the trick anymore. That's the path of sin. And we know, too, that sin is not just destructive to our lives today, it's destructive to our eternity. Romans 6, 23, it's a verse that probably most of you know, for the wages of sin is death. There's a righteous punishment for choosing to walk away from God. When I was younger, my response to that would always be, man, God is so mean, right? Why would he get on to me for just doing these things that don't really matter? It's because he's drawn that line in the sand. And if he's our God, who's made us and told us to live a certain way, we should walk that way, but we don't do it because it's such a seductive thing. Our hearts are wired to walk away. Sin is a prostitute and she'll steal your life. Now this is going to sound like a very morbid point this morning, but I prayed over it a lot this week. And I thought to myself, man, God forgive us anytime we forget how just absolutely offensive our sin is to God because the truth is this, sin carries a death sentence. 
Your sin carries a death sentence. Even today, for the believers in the room, your sin carries a death sentence. And we'll get to this later, how that's covered. But we have to remember every time we sin, even if it's covered by the blood of Christ, how great an offense it is. It is something we deserve. Now, our natural desire to do wrong is so severe that Paul actually calls us slaves to sin. And I believe Paul is absolutely justified to use this language because here's the thing. You're a slave to something when it's killing you, but you keep going back for more. In any sane case, if something carried a death sentence and you knew that it carried a death sentence, you'd walk the other way. But we don't do that, right? God's told us plainly in his word that when you walk away from my path of life, that he's shown us through the law and and now through the life of Christ, that there's a death sentence there. But we say, God, man, I, I don't care. Spit in his face and walk the other way. I think of people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. Uh, When I was in Gainesville for the past four years, I had the opportunity through my church up there to work with a couple people who dealt with that sort of thing. And I heard the same story over and over and over again. I'm trying to stop, but I can't. And I know what it's doing to me, right? But I keep going back for more. My fiance, Mackenzie, right there, she's incredible. Um, (laughs) My fiance, Mackenzie, works as a speech language pathologist. I might be completely wrong about what I'm saying right now, but she works with so many different cases because I I hear the stories, but she she works with so many cases of people that have literal holes bored in their throat, right? Because they they dealt with uh, some sort of head and neck cancer, right? Mouth cancer. But here's the thing. The first thing you'll find that person, even with a hole bored in their throat reaching for is what? It's a cigarette. They're going to go back for it again. In fact, I heard the story last week of McKenzie was telling me there was a guy who was like hiding him under his back, right? Like you'll do anything to get that thing again, even though it's drawing you into death. But for us, the drug is much more deadly. It doesn't just cause bodily death. It causes eternal damnation. Sin has eternal ramifications. We were hopelessly lost. And I I wanted to paint that today. We're about to get into the text because we need to understand how dark our situation was. We were slaves to sin, addicted to the thing that was killing us, walking away from God. And no matter how much he told us, we turned the other way, spit in his face and said, God, I'm a better God than you. That's the state of humanity before Jesus. But praise the Lord, help arrived. We needed a holy AA to stage an intervention in our life and tell us to stop, and he certainly did. For me and Krispy Kreme, that was my dad calling me saying, man, I'm cutting off your allowance if you don't stop. Praise the Lord for you, dad. I'm grateful for that, man. (laughs) And he certainly did. My dad came in and stepped in, and we have a heavenly father who stepped into our lives. Perhaps one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible, Paul turns the page from Romans 7, which is really a passage of mourning. Paul says, and this is going to get crazy, right? I do what I do not want to do, and what I do not want to do, I do, right? There's a whole lot to do, but there's some gold in the middle of that doo-doo right there. That's a good one for you. <laughs> um, the, the point that Paul is trying to say there is that even though I know what's right in my soul, I never do it. And even though I know it's wrong and I shouldn't do it, I still do it. But the truth is that God loved us enough that Paul turns to Romans 8 and he says this in Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Jesus died in your place. That punishment, that condemnation that hung over your head, he put it over his. If you look to the cross, you'll see a sign hanging over his head that says your sin in its place. That cross was mine. That cross was yours, but he took it because he loves you. For the wages of sin is death. Jesus considered that wage enough to pay. 
The salvation of Jesus broke our sin and our shame and our chains. And Paul is going to teach us today that there's a redemption that's even more beautiful. The gospel never stops getting more beautiful. And we're going to see that today in Romans 8, 12 through 17. We're to the passage. We made it. Nobody was doing wheelies, so we're all good. All right, here we go. Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's spirits are God's sons. Amen. Verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified him. That's grace and glory and beauty that I don't deserve. That sin that used to control your life, we see here in verses 12 and 13, that something has radically changed about your soul. We used to be in verse 13, if you live by the flesh, you'll die. But now we're living in a verse 12 world that says, if you live by the spirit, you will live. The spirit now lives inside of us. Part of Jesus dying on the cross was not just paying for your sins, but also giving you a new heart that you can walk free. Because here's the thing, if all Jesus did was pay for your sin and leave you there, you're still a slave to sin. You're running back to the same well over and over and over again. There have been many times in my life where I've been saved. I've, I've, well, there's not many times I've been saved. I've been saved once, but I've been saved for a long time. And I've run back to the well over and over and over again. But the truth is, is that God has given me the power to walk away because he's placed a new heart inside of me. And that heart is the Holy Spirit. It says, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. He's done an awesome work, but there's an even more incredible work here in verse 14. For all of those led by God's spirits are God's sons. The Holy Spirit has made you a child of God. When I heard that when I was younger, I thought it was like a great metaphor. I'm like, man, that's so beautiful. That just fills my heart with such joy. But I think what God wants us to understand is that in a very literal way, more than we even understand that we are the sons and daughters of God. It's not a metaphor. It's not some sort of uh, crazy heartwarming feeling. It's the truth that we've been adopted into his family. You are part of a new family. The old has passed and the new has come. You who once were far off, James even called us enemies of God, have not just been saved. You haven't just been made a servant of God. You haven't even just been made a friend of God. Abraham was a friend of God, but we're under a better covenant. You've been made a child of God. We call this the doctrine of adoption. And we're not going to get into a theology lesson today because that's boring. But we call this the doctrine of adoption, which is the idea that God has literally adopted us into his family. And what that means is that if you are a follower of Christ, there are a set of adoption papers in heaven in the hand of the Father, signed with the blood of Christ and stamped with the seal of the Spirit, and your name is on the front. You are his child. In 2,000 years, the practice of adoption hasn't changed much. And what I mean by that is that today, adopting someone into your family means that you don't really recognize that child as adopted anymore, right? They're just your kid. You don't line up all your kids, you know, side by side and say, you know, this one, I had this one biologically, right? Like, oh, this is my adopted kid, right? If you meet somebody who has adopted kids, they're just like, these are my kids. They're all my kids. There's no distinction between all of them. And that's the same thing for us. God doesn't look at us as just these adopted kids that he begrudgingly brought in, right? He lovingly brought us in. We're children of God, and there's no distinction between adopted and not adopted. In the first century, Roman adoption was the exact same thing. 
In fact, there was an incredibly famous example of adoption that many of you may know of. There was a guy named Julius Caesar. He was awkwardly murdered by a guy named Brutus. Um, I played him as a, in a play one time, so that's just a fun fact. <laughs> You've probably heard of Julius Caesar. He was the guy who conquered all of the Roman Republic, right? Brought it together and made this thing called the Roman Empire that would last for years and years and years. He was, he was the first dude. But the interesting thing about him is that he never got to be the first Roman emperor because he was murdered, right, before he actually got to do it. So before he knew this may happen, so he had set up long before that rule of the entire new Roman empire, probably the greatest empire that ever existed, right? The rule over the newest empire would go to his oldest son, Octavian, known as Caesar Augustus today. And something that may of you, some of you may not know is that he was actually adopted, now, Julius later had biological children, right? And, and you would think that he would want to keep it in the bloodline and pass it to his children. But for him, there was no distinction between those that he had actually had and that one he had adopted. To him, Octavian was just as much a son as his actual children and worthy to receive the inheritance of the greatest empire. And God's looking at you and seeing you as his child, worthy to inherit the kingdom. The reality of adoption is that to our God, it means the same thing. You aren't his adopted kid. You're just his kid, man. You're a son and a daughter of God. He loves you so much. And this brings us to the practical points of the sermon today. Examining this passage, I think we see three key things that have happened because you're now sons and daughters of God. Being a child means, first, you are free from slavery to sin. It says in verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, now, church, I think it's important to first point out what this does not mean. When it says that you're not a slave to sin anymore, that does not mean that you're never going to experience sin anymore in your entire life and that it's never going to be something that tries to pull you back in again. If you said that, I'd be a liar and I'd probably be kicked out of the church because that just ain't true. You're going to continue to fight with sin. It's going to continue to be something that pulls on your heart and tries to get you to fall in. God has not removed sin from your life, but what he has done is two incredible things. And these aren't on the screen, so you'll just have to listen really well. He has freed you from sin by giving you the ability to fight it. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. This is new life in the Spirit of God. Remember earlier we talked about the Spirit has been put inside your heart. It's really changed your will. That's why Jesus said to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, because there's a Spirit in you that's willing to walk a different way now. Before, it was just the flesh, and there was weakness there. But now there's a Holy Spirit within you if you're saved, if you're a believer in Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 12.2, Christians are transformed by the renewal of your mind. And he doesn't stop there. So that they can know the will of God. So that you can test it and see it and walk the right way. Have you ever done something wrong and felt that tug in your heart that you need to go the other way? That's the Holy Spirit working inside of you. God has repaired your compass. He's taken out the broken one and put a new one in and it works perfectly. God has freed you from sin by giving you the ability to fight it. And number two, he has freed you from sin by removing the punishment. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus anymore. As a believer in Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin because it can't sting you anymore, right? There's that verse that says, death has lost its sting. How can you be afraid of anything that can't hurt you anymore? In the Old Testament, living the righteous life really was like slavery. If you sinned, you would immediately put, in, like if this is like, the line of righteousness, you're put into the negative, right? You have to go to the temple. You have to provide a sacrifice in hopes that God would forgive you and move you back up to the positive, but you're just going to sin again, right? And you're just going to go back below that line. But today, believers in Jesus only operate in the positive because his life has been put over ours. 
All of your sins, both yesterday's, today's, and tomorrow's were paid for on Calvary. Jesus has removed the whip from the slave driver and let you walk free. He doesn't have anything that can hurt you anymore. Death has no sting and you can't fear what can't kill you. So what does that mean for us today, church? In your daily struggle with sin, you're probably going to fall in. You're probably going to experience some sort of temptation. You're probably going to give into it again. But it's our job then not to look at ourselves in shame. Here's my challenge to you. Look to the cross, see your sin hanging there, and let that joy move you to live differently. Second, being a child of God means that you have open access to God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, in the Old Testament, God lived in one room, and he could be visited by one guy at one time of year. And if that dude didn't atone for his sins, he's dropping dead on the ground, right? They used to tie this little rope around the ankle and put a bell on it. And if they heard that bell stop, they'd like jingle the bell. If it didn't jingle back, like he's dead. (laughs) And they pulling him out of there. Like they would tie the rope to him and literally pull him out of the tent and just throw him up back. I don't know what you do with it after that. (laughs) But our relationship with God has drastically changed. God is no longer reserved for one person at one place at one time. He lives in all of us. You have open access to God as your father. I love that Paul cries out, Abba, Father. That's actually what little Jewish children, little Jewish boys and girls were cut out to their father as they got home. Their dad would get home from a, a long day of work and they'd see him walk in the door and they'd cry out, Abba, Abba, Dad. And like a good father, you would run right up to him and embrace him and he would set them on his lap and listen to whatever they had to say. That's how God feels about you. God's not a dictator. He's not a principal. We like to treat him that way. We like to think that his laws and, and the way that he calls us to live is some sort of weight that we can't bar on our shoulders, but he never wants us to view it that way. He wants you to view him as a father. He's not a boardroom executive sitting on the 100th floor. He's just your papa sitting in the living room waiting for you to run to him. The funniest thing, though, is that we have this privilege today. I think if the Jews of that day knew that we could just walk up to God whenever we want and speak to him, they would be absolutely appalled that we don't use that every single day. They would be dumbfounded that we can walk up to God every day of the year, every minute of the year, to speak to him and talk to him like our father. So I'd encourage you today to run to your father in prayer. He's waiting for you. And this is going to be the final point of, of the sermon today. Um, and Emma, you can come up, come up and play wherever you are in the room. Point three, you are a co-heir with Christ. This is the promise that's the hardest for me to believe, but probably the most beautiful. In verses 16 and 17, it says this, the spirit himself testifies together with our spirit. That's the Holy Spirit inside of us, sealing us for heaven, that we are God's children and of children also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. Now, as we discussed earlier with the example of the, the Roman uh, lineage and all that sort of stuff, right? When you're an heir, you receive everything that your father has. It calls us co-heirs with Christ, which is remarkable because even though we've done nothing for God, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says that you're saved by faith, not your works. We've literally done nothing for him, but he's going to make us co-heirs with Christ, the one who did everything for us. So what are we going to inherit is the question. To know what we will inherit, simply look back at what Jesus did. Resurrection from the grave and eternity in the kingdom of heaven. If you are a child of God, saved and sealed, saved by Jesus, sealed by the Spirit, set for heaven, then you have a resurrection in the future 
an eternal hope. Hebrews 9.15 says this, there, this is talking about Jesus, he is the mediator of a better covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Because you're God's child, there is an eternity in heaven next to Christ waiting for you. That's the promise of a child of God. But there's also an inheritance for us today, folks. Verse 17 tells us that if we're gonna inherit his glory, we also have to inherit his suffering. If we want all things from Jesus, then you really have to mean that. Jesus said that there are people who are gonna look at you and revile you and curse you because you're a follower in him. And I think we have a a tendency to see that sort of thing and walk the other way and be kind of passive. But Jesus has not called us to live that way. He's called us to be salt and light in our workplaces and uh, in, in this church building, right? It's not really a church building, it's a school. But in our schools as well. If you're going to inherit the future glory, you have to inherit the current suffering and live like a child of God. And and that's the final call to you today. If you're a child of God, live like it. Children so often strive to be like their father. When I was a kid, I thought my dad was the best baseball player in the world. I wasn't right, but (laughs) he's still pretty good. He's upset I'm calling him out, but... (laughs) But I wanted to be like my dad, man. I wanted to play baseball. I saw him hit that ball over the fence. I was like, man, I want to hit the ball over the fence too. That's incredible. And I didn't do it until like a year ago. So it was a a long road. (laughs) But here's the thing. It's the goal of every child to become like their parent. That's the goal of you too. God is your father. Strive to be like your father. Strive to be like Christ. If your chains have been broken, if your name has been changed, then you better live like it. And that's a call to me as well. Um, That's all I got for you today, church. Let's go ahead and pray, um, and, and, and I'll close this up here. Thank you for listening to the message this week. If you want to know more about having a relationship with Jesus or about Family Church, please go check out our website at familychurchsumter.com. We hope you will see you this Sunday.